All right, if you guys have your Bibles, uh, open them to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm 73. All right, let me read uh, this psalm in its entirety, and then let me pray again. Okay, so Psalm 73. Starting verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my, heart, my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of God. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we open your word now, and um, we acknowledge that it is so relevant to our lives, that even though it was written uh, thousands of years ago, that it still speaks to us today, that we still see its realities play out in the world around us, and that we need to be taught by it. And so we ask for uh, the help of your spirit to give us understanding and to apply uh, its truths to our hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would humble us um, before what it has to say. And we pray that you would really teach us, Lord, that when Asaph says the nearness of God is, our, is good, that we would be able to agree with that. We would be able to um, say that alongside with him uh, just, and use our time tonight in your word to, to help us to do that, Lord. We thank you. We love you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. 
Okay, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. That is the pattern, or that is the rhythm that one commentator named Walter Brueggemann uh, observes takes place in the Psalms and in our lives. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. In orientation, life makes sense. Everything is in equilibrium. There are still waters, green pastures. We are mindfully aware of who God is, uh, who we are in relationship to him. But then real life happens, right? Circumstances come up that test our patience, that test our endurance, that test our faith, and it leads to disorientation. And in disorientation, things have fallen apart. Life doesn't make sense. We're left in this like thick fog of questions and doubts. But then there's one more place that he mentions, and it's reorientation. And he says re because it's not necessarily going back to where we started. Right? Reorientation, God lifts us out of the pit, and we are left with a vision of God and of ourselves and of life that is new and better and more insightful than before. And you can even look back at this whole process and we can be thankful uh, for it, even if it meant going through everything else. That's the, the pattern, that's the rhythm that this commentator says that we see in the Psalms and, he, and we see in our lives. Okay, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. There are moments where everything makes sense. There are moments when all of that comes crashing down. And then there are moments when God lifts us up again to a place where we can see even more clearly than before. And when you read through the Psalms, there are specific Psalms that are written in each of these different stages. And I, I think when we look at Psalm 73 tonight, we get all three of them. Okay, Psalm 73 is the Psalm of Lament. It's written uh, by this guy named Asaph. And in it, Asaph laments or he complains or he expresses uh, his frustrations. And his frustrations arise from his observations of the world around him. And more specifically, he looks around and what he sees is, well, it seems like the bad guys are prospering and winning, and the good guys are suffering. <clears throat> and this question, when he looks at all of this, is, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Uh, look at the first couple verses, right? I think they set up the rest of the psalm for us. Verse 1 is kind of like the generic Christian truth, right? He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, like I said, Asaph, he was uh, one of Israel's worship leaders. And so, you know how worship leaders are, right? Like, they know the right things to say. And so he would have been, like, familiar with this truth in his vocabulary. It, it's so familiar. God is good to Israel. That would have almost been cliche for him. And when you get uh, a statement like that, like that, it almost depends on who's saying it, Right? Uh, let me try to illustrate. I graduated seminary a little more than a year ago. And looking back, I'm very thankful for seminary. Uh, but I'm also more thankful to be done with seminary. Uh, someone were to say to me, hey, seminary is so great. Right? It would come off very differently if a first-year seminary student said that versus like a really seasoned pastor who said that. Right? If it was like a first-year seminary student, uh, I would think like, oh, like, that's cute, right? Like, so naive, just wait until you get to your next year. That was me, my first year of seminary. But if a seasoned pastor told me that, like after decades and decades of doing ministry in his local church, and he said, seminary is so great, like that would be sobering for me, right? Like that would make me 
value my own seminary education even more. Or I think that's the same idea here with verse 1, right? You have, if you have someone who's never experienced suffering, like not a second of suffering in their life or hardship, and they say, oh, like truly God is good to Israel, then they might come off as naive. Right? You might think that they are ignorant. But for someone who's been tested by life to say that, that, that God is good to Israel, then it comes off differently. It comes off as something profound. And here in verse 1, it's almost like when you read through this psalm, this is where Asaph, the author, begins and ends. This is where he begins and ends. He reads this uh, statement one way in the beginning, and then he's going to read this differently at the very end. But look at where he's starting, right? Verse 2. He says, Surely God is good to Israel. And then verse 2. But as for me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, I'll just kind of notice like the type of language he uses there. You wouldn't use that kind of language to describe just like a minor bump, a minor road bump in the road of his faith. Right? Like this is a crisis of faith that, that Asaph is talking about here. He's saying that he was this close to losing his footing. He was this close to falling down a really, really far distance. He's saying here, like, I almost walked away. I almost abandoned the faith. I almost gave it up, and I almost joined the other guys, the other side. And so, as you, as you read that, let me ask you, have you, have you been there? Like, have you ever experienced those doubts? Have, can you relate to Asaph's questions and frustrations? Or have you ever sat across the table from someone and they ask you those same questions? Like, is God really good? Like, how can good things happen to bad people? Or is that even where you are tonight? Well, if that's you, then, then what does Psalm 73 do for us? Well, first, I think it gives us a picture of what it looks like to express and to process those doubts before God. Okay, it gives us room um, to be honest about our doubts, right? We can express them, we can bring them before God. It gives us the next steps to take in order to, to deal with those doubts, to think uh, those doubts through. And it gives us gracious reminders that God walks with us through that every step of the way. I mean, when you think about it, it like, it's really God's grace that he includes Psalm 73 in his word for us. Right? Like first off, you have Asaph. He's one of Israel's worship leaders. He's a mature follower of God, and he's struggling with doubt. And so like even mature followers of God, even mature believers are not exempt from that experience. Like they, they still experience doubt. But even more than that, you have his experience written down for us. Right? Like it's written down in Psalm 73 for us to read later on for our benefit um, Tim Mackey, he's a pastor, he put it like this. He said, people's words doubting God have become God's words for doubting people. People's words doubting God have become God's words for doubting people. As those who have probably wrestled with the same questions, experienced the same doubts that Asaph has, Psalm 73 equips us to walk compassionately and helpfully with those who are doubting. Right? After all, that's how God walks with us. Psalm 73 grows us as counselors because it reminds us that there's a lot more under the surface with Asaph's theological question, right? If, if his presenting problem, so to speak, is why do good things happen to bad people, then we see that there's a lot underneath that, right? There's like questions like, oh, has God forgotten me? Or there's questions like, is obedience to God even worth it? 
Right? Like all of that is captured under this question, why do good things happen to bad people? And through all of that, like I said, God walks with us. He walks with us in our experiences of doubt. And what we see is that he doesn't just provide an answer to Asaph's questions, but he actually works redemptively. Right? This is where we, that whole orientation, disorientation, reorientation thing comes in. He works redemptively. He uses it to bring Asaph to a better and a new place. As Asaph processes his emotions and thoughts and frustrations before God in this Godward direction, God sanctifies him and refines him through it. <clears throat> and so uh, our key idea for tonight is when life seems unfair and obedience seems pointless, reinterpret your circumstances from God's perspective. When life seems unfair, obedience seems pointless. Reinterpret your circumstances from God's perspective. And our outline is going to break down that, that statement. So point number one, when life seems unfair and obedience seems pointless. So like we said earlier, Asaph says in verse 2 and 3, my feet had almost slipped, or my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. Right? And the reason for that is he looks around and he, he sees the prosperity of the wicked. Right? And that word in verse 3 for prosperity is the word shalom. Okay, the, the peace of the wicked. And he sees that and, and he says it made him grow envious. Okay, and then in verses 4 to 12, he's going to give us a picture of what he's talking about. And there's a lot in there, um, so I'm just going to summarize it for you. So in verses 4 to 5, he says that the wicked go through life without hardship or troubles. Okay, without hardship or troubles. They don't struggle like everyone else does. Not only that, not only do they get by scratch-free, but they live in extravagance. They live in excess. Uh, it says that they, he, they wear their pride and arrogance like jewelry, like a necklace around uh, their heads. Verse 7, it says their eyes swell out through fatness. Uh, they seem to have all that their hearts could have and even more. Okay, so they live in excess. And yet, like on top of, on top of all of that, they're like totally messed up. Right, verse 8, it says, They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They're prideful. They're violent. They put others down. They set their mouths against the heavens. They mock God. They say things like, how can God know? So they're wicked. They're sinful. But for them, what do we see? Life is good. Right? Life for them is good. Verse 10 says that even, even though they mistreat others, even though they put others down and they oppress others, people actually turn back to them and they find no wrong. Like people aren't like put off by them. They actually are attracted to them. Verse 12, it says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. Okay, I'm guessing that it's not very difficult for you to think of people like that in your life. Right? The kinds of people who can like eat whatever they want and they like never gain weight. You know those kinds of people? Or they mess around in school, they go to parties and stuff, they skip class, they never study, and they like still do better than you on the exam, right? Uh, they impress the recruiters, they land the good jobs just because they're good looking, just because they know the right things to say, they travel the world, they experience the fine things in life, and like you are reminded of it every single time you go on social media because they're always posting about it. They dress immodestly, but it attracts other people's attention. They sleep around with whoever they want, while you here, like at church, you're like trying to, struggling to stay sexually pure in your life. For them, life is good and life is fun. 
And to you, it just all seems so unfair. Maybe you know people like that. Right? Maybe you have looked around and you felt the same way that Asaph does. But what is his response to all of this? Look at verse 13. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. See, so he says, What's the point? Right? I'm trying to live a life that is obedient to God and I get nothing in return. He's asking himself the question, do the benefits of following God really outweigh everything that I'm missing out on? Right? All of the fun stuff I have to give up. Like, this is a very real question that he's asking here. So, so verses 4 to 12, they give us this picture of what Asaph sees. Right? But elsewhere in the psalm, we also get a picture of, uh, of what he feels. Okay? His emotions in response to the world around him. Uh, verse 16, it says that he's confused, right? He's perplexed when he looks at all of this. He doesn't know how to make sense of it. Uh, verse 21, he's embittered. He feels bitterness against God. Verse 3, uh, he admits that he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And I think verse 3 in particular, right, that word envious, or he felt envy toward the arrogant, I think that's, that's significant in helping us to kind of get underneath what's happening, okay? It's, it's significant in, in getting to the heart level. Think about it. What is envy? Right? If you were to define what envy is, how would you define it? I would define it like this. Envy is to feel sorrow over someone else's good. Okay? It's to feel sorrow over someone else's good. And there are two parts to that, right? The first part is what that other person is getting, right? They're good or their blessings. But the second part to that is what you're not getting, right? That's why you're, you're feeling sorrow. That's why you're feeling upset because they're getting something, but you're not getting something. In other words, envy is deeply personal, right? Envy inserts yourself into the picture. It's to want someone else's life and not just that, but to feel like they don't deserve whatever they're getting and to feel like you deserve it instead. You see that? So when we start to peel back the layers of Asaph's complaints here, that's what we start to see, right? He's not just some like, scholarly apologist trying to come up with this answer like in this classroom. Oh, why do you good things happen to bad people? No, like, there's more to that. This is deeply personal for him. And here he feels like he's the victim, Right? He feels like he is personally neglected and wronged by God. Now, let me just say that what Asaph sees around him is messed up. Okay? And it's, it is messed up because God is going to make it right in the end. We'll get to that later. Right? God is going to get the final word. But in the midst of this like, really obvious, blatant wrong that is happening around Asaph, what God does here is he also reveals some less obvious places in his heart, in Asaph's heart, that has gone wrong as well. Uh, Paul Tripp, he's a biblical counselor. He wisely observed that, uh, he said, human beings do not live life based on the facts of their existence, but based on their interpretation of the facts. Okay, we don't just live life based on the facts of your existence, but based on the interpretation of the facts. What he's saying is we don't just experience life and these things that happen to us. We're always thinking, we're always evaluating, we're always organizing, uh, interpreting, explaining. In other words, there is a story that we are telling ourselves. 
right? And based on that story, we see ourselves and we see the world in a certain kind of way. And so how does Asaph interpret the circumstances surrounding him? Like, what is the story that he tells himself? Well, look at verses 4 to 12. Like, what are the, the details that he focuses on? Like, how would you describe the things that he focuses on? Well, they all have to do with what's physical, what's external, what's immediate. Right? Physical, external, immediate. He sees everything through the lens of and relation to his own personal present, temporal happiness. That's the story he's telling himself. And because he's telling this story, his interpretation leads him to understate or to omit certain truths and to overstate and exaggerate other truths, right? And uh, little kids do this all the time, right? If you've ever had two crying kids come up to you uh, because they're fighting, right? And like you ask one of them, oh, like, what happened? Why are you crying? you're never going to get like a reliable story, right? You're only, first of all, you're only getting one side of the story and then you're going to get uh, like certain exaggerated parts of the story, right? Like the kid's going to be, oh, he hit me, right? Like he's a bully, he's so mean to me. And you're going to get uh, certain omitted parts of the story, right? Certain parts of the story that are left out. In this case, you hit him first, right? Or something like that, something really important. And what is said might be true, but it's not 100% objective, it's not reliable, because it's coming from this certain perspective that's loaded with certain expectations. Right? There's a story that we're telling ourselves. And so how do we see this play out with Asaph? Well, he underlines, he emphasizes certain things. Right? He, under, or he emphasizes the success and the prosperity of the wicked. He says they're always at ease. They're always increasing in riches, verse 12. He says they never encounter troubles. Uh, he, he overstates the, their prosperity. He also overstates his own self-righteousness, right? His own self-pity. Uh, what does he omit? What does he exclude? He, he omits God's blessings in his own life, right? Verse 13, he says, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Really, the only thing that he mentions about himself is what he feels like he's missing. Right? Like, that's the only thing he, he mentions about himself the things that he's, he's missing out on, namely God's rewards for his obedience and faithfulness. And so you see what's happening here? Now, now we want to be very careful, right? We want to be very sensitive uh, with how we communicate what I'm about to say, if we, if we say it at all. But when it comes to these categories of sinner, sufferer, and saint, right? Like, we, we use these categories all the time. Then Asaph here, he, he seems to really be emphasizing the sufferer category maybe at the expense of seeing himself as a sinner or a saint. Right? And again, like, I would say probably don't ever say that to someone. Don't say like you're emphasizing the suffering category. That's, there's better ways to communicate that. Anyways, so are you starting to put his story together? Right? When we begin to deconstruct his doubt, we realize that in his doubting, he's not only like, challenging a certain belief, which is truly God is good to Israel. Right? He's challenging that idea but even underneath that, there are other beliefs, expectations, desires that, be, that are being threatened. And for Asaph, it was the belief that God ought to recognize and reward his faithfulness in this life. It was the expectation that those who live morally good lives should have a bigger pile of stuff than those who live morally bad lives. It was a desire for things that he thought that he deserved, but were being unfairly given to those who were less deserving. Right? Like that is the operating belief underneath his doubt. 
And so when he looks around and he sees that this operating belief, this, this idea is not coming to fruition, then what happens? He grows envious. He wasn't just angry at these other people. He wanted what they wanted. He thought to himself, okay, if my own life was going better, if I had this nice stuff also, then I wouldn't be so bothered. It's the same attitude of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Right? If you think about it, when the father brings out the best stuff for his younger son because he's come back home, the older brother resents that father for it. Why? Because he's like, well, why does this guy get all the stuff when I've been here this entire time? Like, when you think about that, what does he really want? Right? He wants his father's inheritance. He wants his father's stuff. It's the same thing that that younger brother wanted. Except for this older brother, the way that he was trying to get it was disguised under this veneer of religion and morality and good works. And we do this too, don't we? Right? Like we make ourselves believe that we're actually living in obedience to God and doing the right thing when sometimes it's actually something else that we're after. And I think certain idols uh, are, are more deceptive and more subtle than others. I think fear of man is a good example of this. Like fear of man uh, might be an idol that we, we really care about, right? And fear of man might cause us to do certain good things, right? Like to act well-behaved, to be polite to others. And it might keep us from doing certain bad things, right? It might keep us from, like, saying something stupid or uh, whatever, right? But at the end of the day, what we really want is the approval of others. What we really want is to serve this idol of fear of man. We don't really care about pleasing God, right? You see how that happens? And so as we deconstruct Asaph's doubts here, it confronts us with this question, what do you really want and I think a way we answer that question is we look at the things that frustrate us, the things that cause us to doubt God's character, the things that make us feel bitter, the things that cause us to feel envy. And all of these things reveal what we really treasure. These things reveal what we really desire. Um, I like how one author des defined desire. He said, desire is to focus on one thing while virtually ignoring another. To focus on one thing while virtually ignoring another. And that's what we see happening here. Right? Asaph's focus is on the stuff that he, we can get in this life, and it makes him lose sight of everything else. For example, envy or this wrong desire keeps us from enjoying the things that God has given to us. Right? Asaph doesn't even bother mentioning the things that he's been blessed with. One commentator described it like this. He said, the power of envy is such that it made even the Garden of Eden feel like it was not enough. And so that's verses 1 to 14, right? Just deconstructing his doubt, really getting underneath what's, like, everything that's happening there. And then we get to verse 15, and there's a turn that starts to take place. Um, one commentator imagines it like, like this, that Asaph is, is stuck in this spiral of self-pity, and he reaches this conclusion in verse 15, and then it snaps him out of his thinking. And it leads us to our second point, which is reinterpret your circumstances from God's perspective. Reinterpret your circumstances from God's perspective. So this turn in this psalm happens as Asaph begins to, take, uh, begins to take the focus off of himself and onto God and onto others. And he says, if I, had, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Last week we learned from Psalm 139 that even before a word is on your tongue, God already knows it. Right? Like God already knows what you're going to say. 
And so up to this point in Psalm 73, like God already knows everything that Asaph was thinking, all the things he was feeling, all the emotions that he was wrestling through. But when we get to verse 15, like Asaph teaches us, like that, that doesn't necessarily mean we should express everything that we're thinking. Why? Because it affects those around us. Okay, uh, let me try to illustrate. It's kind of like when you have a crush on someone and your friend asks you, who do you like? Right? And you like refuse to say that person's name. You haven't told anyone before yet. And like you refuse to say their name. Why? Because once you say it out loud, then it becomes real, right? It becomes a thing. And like you pretty much have to ask them out at that point. Right? Once you say it out loud, you, once you verbally acknowledge that you have feelings for this person, it becomes concrete or tangible. And I think that's the idea here. Asaph recognizes that he, if he were to verbalize all of these doubts, all of these accusations and frustrations, they would become more real. And his words might become opportunities to influence other people's understanding of God. Right? He says, I would have betrayed the rest of God's people, especially as a worship leader, especially as a person of influence. So I think one way that we can begin to take the focus off of ourselves is to recognize that even when it comes to our own individual struggles, they're not all about us. Okay, even our own individual struggles are not all about us. They're meant to grow us so that we can know God better, but also so that we can help others to know him better. That God has saved us when he has called us into a family, right? A, a corporate body whose members we are obligated to be thinking about. And yes, there should be room for us to bring our raw and our honest emotions and frustrations and struggles to others. And if we're on the receiving end of that, then yeah, we need to be good listeners. But as those sharing, we need to recognize there's times when we're like simply ranting, right? Versus times where we're actually open to receive what others have to say to us. I think, that's, I think Asaph recognizes that distinction. Verse 16. says, when I, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. That's what happens in verses 16 and 17. All right, left to himself, Asaph says, this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. But the turning point is when he's with the people of God in the sanctuary of God. And rather than like cutting himself off from God's means of grace, uh, for example, going to church, it's through these things, it's through putting himself in the pathways of grace that he's able to start to see from God's perspective. And it's from that perspective he realizes what his doubting and his envy and his anger was before God, right? He, he talks about it in verse 21 and 22. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, he realizes, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Right? He says, I was short-sighted. I was unable to think beyond what was in front of me. I was ignorant of the bigger picture. I was simply reacting to my desires and my limited perception. And here, when he's in the sanctuary, when he sees God rightly, then he can see his sin rightly. He can see himself rightly. And we begin to see from God's perspective two truths, I think, in particular, come to the surface. First one is this, that for the wicked, the end is near. Okay, for the wicked, the end is near. This is in verses 18 to 20. I think he summarizes those verses in verse 27. Like we said earlier, the Christian life only makes sense when we keep eternity in view. Right? Without eternity, without like our final destiny, then this life is the only thing that matters. 
without eternity, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, right? Without eternity, then this life should be about what we can experience and acquire and enjoy in the here and now. Without eternity, then God ought to reward and bless those who obey him and punish those who mock him right here and right now. But of course, that's not all that there is. Right? Of course, God is going to make everything right. He uses two metaphors uh, to describe that. First one uh, is in verses 18 and 19. He uses the same imagery that he uses earlier in verse 2, which is feet slipping. Right? He says in verse 2, my feet had nearly slipped, I nearly stumbled. And then here he says, truly you set them in slippery places, that they're standing on unstable ground. Um, I don't know if you guys ever watched those action movies where the bad guy is like standing on this rocky cliff or like a frozen lake or something. And you know, like, you know what's going to happen, right? Like right before they pull the trigger, right before something bad happens, they're going to like fall through the ice right into the water or they'll like fall off the cliff. The ground underneath them is going to give and they're going to be swept away. That's, that's the picture that Asaph is talking about here. The second illustration he uses is uh, he compares their fortunes now in this life to a dream. Verse 20. As as real as your dream might appear, in a moment they're going to be rudely awakened to reality. That what is coming for them is going to undo everything that they've ever gained and everything that they've ever lived for. Um, I don't know if you guys remember uh, the whole like Steve Harvey Miss Universe debacle in 2015. If you guys don't remember, uh, Steve Harvey was the host of Miss Universe, right, in 2015. And he mistakenly announced the wrong winner of the contest. He, he said it was Colombia, it was supposed to be Miss Philippines. It was like this super awkward moment on live national television, right? If you were to watch a rerun of that entire thing, and, and you watch Miss Colombia's reaction, Miss Colombia's the, the fake winner, but if you watch her reaction to Steve Harvey's first announcement, you would tell her, like, wait, it's not real, right? Like, don't celebrate. It's not real. In just a second, all of this, as sad as it is, all of this is going to be taken away from you. Like, I think that's kind of the idea that he's getting at here. Like, just like that, snap of your fingers, this is all fake. It's going to be taken away. On the other hand, we know that for us, the people of God, that this is not our final destination. That this life isn't all that there is. Verse 24, it says that afterward you will receive me to glory. That the best is yet to come. And if you know the best is yet to come, then that frees us from getting caught up in the things that this life has to offer. Um, there's a, an illustration. I think it's from John Wesley. But he says, imagine that you have a distant relative that you didn't know that you had. Right? And, and for whatever reason, they passed away and they left you this huge inheritance. Right? Millions and millions and millions of dollars. And as you're on your way to collect that inheritance, about half a mile away from the bank, your car breaks down. What do you do when your car breaks down? Do you like shake your fist at God? Do you look around and you envy everyone else that has a car? No, you like skip your way to the bank. And that half mile walk is the happiest mile or half mile walk that you ever took in your life. Right? That, like, that's what's coming for us. And so if we know that, then we don't have to get caught up in uh, the things that this life has to offer. So that's the first truth that comes uh, into clarity for, for Asaph, that for the wicked, the end is near. Okay? But the second truth is this, for the faithful, God is near. 
for the faithful God is near. I think he talks about that in verses 23 to 26. He summarizes it, uh, summarizes it again in verse 28. And I think this section is important because it's helpful to know that God's going to make things right in the end. Right? It's helpful to know that first truth, that all of this stuff that the wicked have, it's temporary, it's fading away, they won't have it later. But I'm glad that Asaph includes these verses because it's not just like what the bad guys won't have later on, but it's also what we as believers have right now. Right? What we have right now. Here, Asaph gets to the heart of the matter. He gets to the level of desire. It's what he's really been talking about this entire time. And what he says is, I don't need to envy the prosperity of the wicked because the greatest, the most satisfying thing that I could ever possess, I already have right now, and that's a relationship with God. Right, verse 23 says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Right, this is this picture of God patiently and wisely and lovingly walking with us. That he's holding your right hand. That he's continually with you, even in your deepest doubts, even in your deepest frustrations. He's guiding you with, your counsel, with his counsel. That he gives you wisdom to understand life, even when it doesn't make sense. He gives you eyes to see beyond today and beyond this life. He gives you the skill to live with eternity in view. And don't skip that word there in verse 23, that word, nevertheless. Because right before this, Asaph had just confessed that he was brutish, he was ignorant before God. And yet, verse 23, yet nevertheless, God is with him. Right? God is with him. You know what you call that? That's, that's grace. Right? Do you see what grace does? One, it gets Asaph out of himself. Right? Otherwise, he's, Asaph will just be going from self-righteousness to self-pity to self-righteousness to self-pity, and he'll be caught up in himself. It gets him out of himself. But second, grace levels the playing field. That Asaph recognizes that he's no better than those people that he's been looking at. That sure, their vices might be more apparent on the outside, but Asaph recognizes that he was after the same thing that they were. And so as this turn, take, turn takes place, notice like, the change that is happening from the beginning of the psalm, right? Earlier, Asaph is complaining about how the wicked live trouble-free lives. They have healthy bodies. Like there are no struggles or issues for them. And in verse 26, he says, My flesh and my heart may fail. Or you can still be honest. Like life is not easy all of a sudden. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And my body could fall apart, my health could fall apart, but God is my portion and my strength. Verse 2, Asaph started by saying, but as for me, right, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. We get to verse 28, God brings him to the place where you can say, but for me, it is good to be near God. And do you see what's happened? Asaph has started this psalm judging God's faithfulness on the basis of how many of his own desires for this life that God came through on. Right? That's the basis of God's faithfulness at the beginning. But he realizes God's agenda is so much different than his. God's focus is not on the here and now. God's focus is redemptive and it's spiritual and it's eternal. That God is working to free us from our bondage to those desires. 
And God's purpose is to bring Asaph and us to this place where we can say in verse, 20, uh, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Right? Like that's what God is after. And so if God's nearness is our good, then it means that whatever in this life draws us closer to him, then those are the best things for us. I think the New Testament equivalent for this idea is in Philippians 3, right? Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, I would gladly suffer the loss of all things. I would, uh, I would go through persecution, whatever it takes, that I may gain Christ and to know him and to the, know the power of his resurrection. We said at the beginning that we're all interpreters, right? We all go through life with this story that we tell ourselves and for us as Christians, we know that the defining story that we see life through is the story of the gospel. Right? That's the story that we tell ourselves. That's the story that informs our reality. The story of the gospel helps us to make sense of life. It reminds us that God himself is no stranger to the frustrations and the injustices that Asaph experienced. It reminds us that God himself, that he is the greatest victim of injustice, not us. Right? He is as he gave up his innocent son to be crucified on the cross. The story reminds us that God is not unaware of the cries of his people, that there is this purpose to his apparent slowness. Romans 5, 6, it says that at the right time that Christ died for the ungodly. 2 Peter 3, 9 says that he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient, not wishing that any should perish, because he desires that all should come to repentance. Right, you see how the gospel informs our reality? That's the defining story of our lives. I mean, just think of the picture of the Son of God hanging on a cross. Right, like, does that make sense? Of course not. And yet, God used that story to bring about the salvation of sinners like you and me. And it's through that, that cross-shaped story that we make sense of life. It's that cross-shaped story that we can go to even when life doesn't make sense. It's that story that reminds us, as, as Asaph says, that the nearness of God is our good. So my prayer is that we would say, that we would be able to say along with Asaph, verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Let's pray. God, we confess how easy it is for us to look around and to envy the people around us. We confess how easy it is for us to um, even serve you, not for you, but for the stuff that you can give us. And Lord, we repent of that. We ask for your forgiveness in that. We, we ask that uh, you would grow us in our faith to believe that the nearness of God is our good, that our, our heart and our, our flesh and our bodies can waste away and fade, and yet we have the greatest and the most satisfying thing that we could ever have, which is you yourself, relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would take the words of Scripture of Psalm 73 and you would make them real um, to those of us here as we go back to our campuses, as we witness um, injustice and, and maybe even 
wickedness prosper, and we're so tempted to, to want some of that, Lord, that you would change our desires to want you more, um, and, and you would inform our reality. You would remind us of the gospel and how the gospel uh, helps us to make sense of life. And so do that, Lord, um, as we go from here. We love you. We thank you for uh, just time in your word tonight. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.